Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I am Ross Furukawa, and today I am here with the editor, Matt Hall. What's up, Matt? Hey, how's it going? I am well. Folks, we have a meaty, meaty podcast for you today. Uh, the hot topic is schools. When are they going back to what are a lot of people are referring to reopening, but the unions would say that they're already open. So for the purposes of today, we're saying reopening schools and meaning in-person instruction. Did I nail that one, Matt? Yes, that makes sense. That I makes just sense it, it just occurred to me after listening to a couple hours of interviews um, that everyone, you know, all the parents anyways are talking about, let's reopen the schools. And uh, yeah. at, I mean, you know, teachers we, would say we're open. Yeah, I mean, we can set it up for folks. that. So the way it is now is the way it has been for not quite a year, but almost a year, has been that kids are learning remotely, right? right. Kids aren't going on campus with a couple of very rare exceptions and corner cases, but kids are not on, kids are not on campus. There is a proposal to have them back on campus starting around March 15th, give or take, based on um, some vaccination schedules for teachers and a, a learning plan that's been put in place by the district. Right. So we've done a couple things around this. It's been kind of a hot topic for several weeks now. But this week we put out a poll and about 1,600 people responded. And we asked simple questions of, do you think that uh, the school should be open one day a week or five days a week, or meaning in, in-person learning? And we'll be sharing those results with you, you know, kind of weaved in this podcast, but then also uh, in the Santa Monica Daily Press and also on smdp.com. So make sure you guys check that out. It's really interesting. Um, so we have four guests today on the podcast, and, you know, these are kind of interesting people to have on because they give a, a completely different lens into this subject. First one is uh, someone who you've all heard before. It's Andrew Gumbel. Matt, who's Andrew Gumbel? Uh, so in the context of this podcast, he's just a parent, but the, the people are going to know him because he's also been on the podcast before to talk to us about um, some reporting he's done into the riots and looting. Right. But, but in this case, he's not talking about that. He just also happens to be a parent who is involved in this discussion. So he's, right. he's not on the podcast today as a as a journalist or an investigator, he's just he's just on as a, a parent who's advocated for this problem. Yeah, this. called parent advocate. Yep. So another guest we have on today is Amir Torkamani. Yep. So Amir is another parent um, who has been involved in this discussion, and the dip. So I guess one of the differences between Amir and Andrew and people will hear is while they're both um, come from the same desire in terms of school opening, they have divergent opinions on the quality of the result so far. And that's led them to different points in their decisions for their kids in education. Right. right. And so yep. you, folks will hear, but Andrew is a little bit more hopeful about the end of the process. Um, Amir is not, and has gone as far as to pull his kids out of SMM USD at this point, because he just, he just believes it's a failed, failed process and that there's no recovering from it at this point. At this point anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully he, he he's hopeful about, he's, he's hopeful for the future, but, but Right now, he's yeah. he's out. Okay. Uh, the next guest is the superintendent, Dr. Ben Durati. So that doesn't really require any explanation, but he is our superintendent. He's been leading the district from the district side through the negotiations with our next guest, which is uh, Sarah Braff, who is the president of the, the Teachers Union, the Santa Monica Malibu Classroom Teachers Association. Yep. It's a mouthful. So, yeah, this is a good one. And, and by the way, folks, uh, these discussions were so um, – dense that we're going to put them up as their own podcast. So if you're interested in hearing anybody's 
45 minute discussion that they had with us. Um, we'll be putting those up subsequently after this podcast so you can hear the entire conversation. Okay, Matt. So what we know right now is that parents are, are frustrated and angry. What is this first snippet share? So, so in, in the first, the first two voices that folks are going to hear are the parents, right? So we're going to, we're going to have Amir first. And I think Andrew comes on next. And what we've done is um, taken some quotes from them, from their, lo- their larger interviews that highlight their concerns with the district and the process. Yeah. So you're going to kind of hear, hear their concerns first. And then um, once we've heard their concerns, you know, we'll go into some of the responses to those concerns from the officials. Right. Okay, here we go. So here's Amir Torkamani. A brief summation of your decision here to, to pull your kids and, and why you went down that path. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you guys um yeah so like you said i've i made the decision um as of effective yesterday to pull my kids out of uh, franklin elementary because uh, i've been involved in trying to push to get our schools open to the maximum extent possible and get our kids back into school and uh, just the way things were going you know our kids have been failed i think at, at, at every step of the way um, you know, there were a lot of failures that have led us to this point now today where our schools, it's now been a week where our schools are legally uh, allowed to open under, you know, state the safety guidelines that are set forth by the California Department of Public Health and the LA County Department of Public Health. Um, but our schools are now closed, um, essentially voluntarily, because of what I view the, the failures of the people who are supposed to be in charge and the people who are supposed to care about our children. And I've, I've lost, um, I've lost faith that at least for the remainder of the school year, they'll be able to get the kids back on campus in any sort of meaningful way, at least that's meaningful for my kids that are in first grade. So I made the decision to put them in a school where they can go every day, um, morning to afternoon, five days a week, and um, they'll be happy, you know, getting the academic and social and emotional support that they need from uh, school, which is what our public school system is supposed to be doing. Okay, so uh, Amir certainly had uh, a strong opinion. He, he, he pulled the ultimate move, which is to pull his kids out of the district. And now we move into Andrew, uh, Andrew Gumbel's take on the current situation. Um, as a parent... How do you understand the state of school reopening today? Like, what's your understanding of this situation? My understanding is that there is a tremendous willingness, especially from the district leadership, to get students back to school. Um, I think because of a number of strategic mistakes that were made, especially in the early part of this academic year, that has become a lot more difficult than maybe it needed to be. And specifically, it's become more difficult than the science and the guidance from the CDC, from the Biden administration, from Governor Newsom, et cetera, should make it. Um, And that's especially frustrating for me as a parent in this district, which I've been involved in and have loved for for 20 years now. My, My oldest son started in 2001. Um, because this is a great district. You know, it's it's one of the leading public school districts in California. It has a tremendous reputation. We are better than to get stuck on, you know, a number of what seem to me to be eminently solvable issues to prevent students who are suffering in distance learning mode from getting back to the classroom. Um, You know, and this has gone in several steps. 
Um, the first step being in December when the school board at Dr. Drati's recommendation adopted this model of distance learning plus for the rest of the year. What does distance learning plus mean? Well, we've been trying to figure that out ever since. My best read on it, and I would say that, you know, a lot of parents, and a lot of activist parents, I'm not sure totally understand the subtlety in Dr. Drati's mind on this, is that DL plus is a way of saying that when we go back, the individual school sites will have some flexibility. They'll be able to define the plus as they see fit. In other words, maybe the plus means just a couple of hours of extracurriculars one day a week. Or maybe it means, you know, a full-blown return to five-day-a-week uh, in-person instruction in the classroom. You know, it's all a different kind of plus. I think what parents hear when they hear DL plus is a kind of straitjacket that prevents schools, teachers, administrators, etc., from going back as fully as the scientific advice suggests we should. And from the teacher's point of view, there is a nervousness that it doesn't pin things down in a way that they feel they are totally in control of. And I think it's very important for parents to acknowledge that we don't hate teachers, absolutely on the contrary. We also don't hate their position on this issue. Uh, they're the ones who are going to have to teach. They're the ones who are going to be in the classroom. They're the ones who have responsibility for our children during class time. You know, what they think is absolutely crucial here. And I think there's been, you know, some level of confusion among parents, among teachers also. There are also some legitimate concerns. You know, the main one, I think, is, you know, it's all very well saying that in the abstract, it's safe to go back to in-person instruction. But, you know, what are the protocols going to be? How well are they going to be enforced? You know, if we've looked at bathrooms in the school district over the last several years and reeled in horror at how dirty they are, how can we be sure the temperature checks hand washing, sanitizing, all of this is going to happen as it's supposed to. I think those are eminently legitimate concerns. Um, and what's frustrating about the way things have gone is instead of talking in practical terms about how do we make this happen? How do we as parents do what we always do, which is how do we support the teachers? How do we make sure they get what they need? How do we make sure our, our kids get what they need? How can we be you know, most valuable in that way? Things have devolved into a situation where you have angry parents who feel that there's resistance to going back to school. You have some teachers who sympathize with that position, others who have dug in their heels, um, lined up behind the union, which itself has been you know, pretty intransigent on these things. And it's become, instead of a debate about what do we know, what do the experts say, and how do we enact that, into one of how does everybody feel? Here's this group over here who's angry about this. Here's this group over here who's angry about the other thing. And there's no reconciling those two groups, so we're stuck. And getting unstuck from that position is, I think, what I, as a parent activist, am most concerned to do so that we get back to school, not only on March 15th, as it looks like we will, but to do that as fully as possible and then to ramp up from there as quickly as possible so that the next academic year looks much more like a regular year than the craziness that we've had to go through over the last 12 months. While this represents a portion of, of the parent community, right, this probably it should be said that this doesn't represent all of the parents in the community. There, there are certainly parents that both Dr. Durati and Sarah Braff, the president of the Teachers Association, um, have said that you know certain kids are thriving and certain kids are doing really well in this. Um, but what we do know is that this is a complicated process, and, um, and again, it's an unprecedented. We keep using the word unprecedented, but we really. Our generation certainly has not been through a pandemic and, uh, you know, all of the, the normal things that unions and districts need to discuss uh, have changed. So we had a discussion with Dr. Durati. Uh Matt, how did that go? 
Yeah, so I think of all the we highlighted there's all these critiques, right? We we talked to Drady about them and I think his his highlights the repeated themes that he comes back to several 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 times are collaboration, you know, he strongly feels that, that the way we got to where we are was actually through collaboration and with parents and everyone talking and buying in. So we're going to hear some stuff from him about the process and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also, you know, highlights the fact that this is, this might not be where everybody wants to be, but it, it's what it's where we need to be in his mind to do the best we can for all parties involved, right? Everyone came to the table. There's a bunch of negotiation. This might not be where Including you want to Including parents. Be. Yeah. And this is, this is his point, that this might not be where we wanted to be, where everybody wants to be, but this is the compromise position that is best for everybody. Right. In his mind. And, and it should be noted that there's lots of different ways to go about, you know, opening up districts. There's no, there's no playbook for this, right? Uh, some districts, there's a, there's a superintendent that says, here's what we're doing. Everybody lock elbows, and this is the direction we're going. We're opening X amount of hours, and this is what we're doing, right? Um, certainly private schools have the ability to do that. In this case, um, Dr. Drotti chose to do more of a democratic process, include parents, include discussions with the teachers union. Um, and so this is his story. So from your professional capacity, at what point did you realize the scope and the scale of the disruption would be locally? And how did that impact your planning for what would potentially be a reopening when you envisioned reopening could begin? So if you remember when we shut down, all of the work that we've been doing has happened in phases. There's been a re-evolving approaches to reopening and so on. Let me just kind of go to the timeline. In the beginning, we shut down the schools. We sent everybody home and we went straight distance learning. And at that time, staff had to scramble and try to figure out how to do distance learning. We had to get computers to everyone and so on. So the focus around last spring was how do you strengthen distance learning? In the meantime, I had to start thinking about the fall, the reopening that's going to take place in the fall. There was a hope that things are going to start declining in, in summertime and so on. So the state passed a bill, a bill that said that uh, schools are going to open in person. That was actually in law. So throughout the entire summer, we were planning for a hybrid reopening. What I did was I engaged, I decided to engage my parents and staff. And we were still in the negotiation table talking about that. And, and around August, uh, things it took a, a turn for the worse. And all of a sudden, the state said, uh, at this point, we're not going to open in person. And that's where they came up with the whole tier system, if you remember. The red tier. Right, right. So, so, so you guys were planning for yeah. a hybrid reopening model through the summer, while you yes. thought you were going to reopen, and I, I yeah. totally get this, right? And then, then there was yeah. case counts took a huge spike, and we started lurching from crisis to crisis, right? We went from Fourth yeah. of July to the, like the, yeah. end the end of summer, and then we had restaurants open and closed, and was, everything went haywire, right? And we yeah. ended up in our tiered system now, where we have these red, yellow, orange, purple tiers, and yes. that tier system is where we remain today, right? So the tiered system put in place a rule that said you can't open schools at different grade levels until case counts reach yeah. certain thresholds, right? Yes. So interesting stuff. You know, in our poll, one of the things that, one of the questions that we asked is we asked what agencies do you think are responsible for our schools not being open now? 
And again, 1,600 participants in this poll, overwhelmingly, they said the teachers union, um, which in this case would not be the California Teachers Association. It would be the Santa Monica Malibu Classroom Teachers Association. And Sarah Braff, who's a president of that organization, uh, certainly has some opinions of what she saw from her side of the fence. So, so why don't we just start out by giving me the lay of the land a little bit about how, how, from your perspective, from the perspective of the teachers, how is the school reopening debate discussion going? Like, what's it like for you? Well, I try to recognize deeply that I represent teachers and nurses and speech pathologists and counselors that have a wide variety of opinions. It's not like every teacher or every counselor has the same opinion about what should happen and how it should happen. Gotcha. And, and this, you know, the, the belief in expertise is you know, a pet peeve of mine that I have where folks don't believe in experts anymore. Right. And everyone can do right. anything because they, they see right. something on the internet. So I, I totally understand that, that process. Right. And so going, getting a little more specific here into part of the, the consternation that we're currently experiencing a lot of the debate is about uh, an addendum to the current contract that um, came out last week related specifically to school reopening, right? Okay. Addendum 8. <laughs> addendum 8. And the, in particular, there, there's some particular points in there that are causing parent concern. And the, the big, okay. the 800-pound gorilla in the room is the agreement stipulates that school reopening in Santa Monica is contingent upon um, the vaccine distribution process. And it, it says that once vaccines, that the school reopening can only occur 15 days after vaccines have been made available to teachers. And that, 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 uh, what do you want to call it? But that point that I don't want to say it's a demand. Cause I know you'll, you'll take issue with that word, but like that, that fact in the contract isn't part of the reopening requirements that are, uh, imposed by the state or the county, that that seems to be a local requirement that is an additional hoop to jump through, and that that in particular is causing concern among parents. And so can can you tell us a little bit about where that came from and how that got put into the addendum? Well, truthfully, teachers would rather be fully vaccinated before they return. This was a compromise which is what we do when we problem solve. At least this way, teachers would have their first shot. Many of our teachers are of different ages and have different health considerations. And we have to take that into account. We also wanna keep the community safe because if you look, I I believe it's in the British Journal of Medicine, they're, they're coming up with a lot of kids getting sick in both Israel and Italy where they've returned and they are not reopening the schools at this time because there's been a spike uh, in children getting it. Now, I hope that that's not the case with us, but we have to recognize that there are a variety of um, infections. There are changes in infections. They mutate. We don't know exactly, but we don't take this as an exception within the rest of the agreement. It's a part of. This is actually one of the stickiest points for parents when they uh, are 
are looking at this MOU. So this is what Amir Torkamani has to say about it. I know, I know that you know the teachers' union has been pushing for vaccines as a prerequisite to uh, come back to work, and I find that to be, you know, I, I fully support getting teachers vaccinated as soon as possible, hundred um, percent. But the CDC has said that vaccinations should not be a prerequisite to reopening schools; that schools can reopen safely without the teachers being vaccinated. So I don't understand why the, you know, why the teachers' union would take the position. That the vaccines have, I mean, it's completely contrary to what the CDC is saying, even what President Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are saying. Like every scientist and every, you know, every authoritative person or organization on this issue says that vaccines are not a prerequisite to reopening. So I don't, I just don't understand it, how you can be willing to sacrifice the well being of children in order to make this demand that's not supported by science. It blows my mind that 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 would happen. Andrew Gumbel also echoed this sentiment. Um, let's hear what Andrew has to say. But, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, the scientific advice is that because of the transmissibility of the virus from, from children to adults and because of the protocols and precautions that have been in place for teachers coming and going and other staff coming and going and, and, and a situation in which parents almost certainly would not be allowed on campus, you know, the science says you don't have to wait for vaccinations. You can go now. Um, having said that, the reality is that the more reluctant teachers, I think, are very anxious to get vaccinated. I think now that they, we have an agreement in place that they're going to go back to the classroom, that should hasten the pressure to provide vaccinations for them. Uh, and at least get them their first dose, you know, ASAP and schedule their second dose, you know, as soon as possible after that. I, I don't know that anybody thinks that teachers should not be vaccinated quickly. Uh, do they need to be? Theoretically, no, but as a practical matter in terms of getting as many of them back as possible, it would be ideal if we could line all that up together and get the return to class coincide with the availability of the vaccine for those teachers. So this is obviously a hot button issue. And so Matt presses a little further. I want you to be able to explain to parents in as clear a clear a fashion as you can why the teachers are focused, or at least some of them were focused enough on this vaccination requirement that it made its way into the contract. And while it's not the only stumbling block, it is, in fact, a stumbling block in the reopening. And it's one that has really drawn the laser focus of parents and critics. And, and, I, and you know, I can expand on that because... As you mentioned earlier, the, you know, your union isn't monolithic, right? There's different people. And I absolutely understand that there's going to be some people because they're 65 or older or they're immunocompromised or they have a partner at home who's immunocompromised. And for those folks, I totally get where these requirements are coming from. But there's also teachers who are single and 40. I'm not making any judgments on anybody for being single and 40, but they're single and 40 and they 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 would be willing to go back and it seems like that requirement has removed a degree of flexibility that could have enabled the district and the union and parents to find people who are willing to go back more quickly and pair them up with students who want to go back more quickly and sort of create a fast track. And we can't do that now because we have to wait on this. And so yeah, summarizing the teacher, uh, the teacher, the, the parent position on this, like, Again, explain to them or as, as clearly as we can why this requirement is there and why it's universal. 
this is a hard one. Um, we're, I just want you to know we're taking part in a forum on uh, March 1st for teachers uh, with epidemiologists and occupational scientists, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we're going to have this discussion with them to see if um, feelings will change. But as of this moment, teachers feel like they're being asked to risk their lives to go back. And there's this feeling that school is closed. School is not closed. School is open five days a week. And kids are making progress. Not all equally. Some are thriving. Some not so much. Some, but in our regular school, some are thriving, some not so much. So those are learning issues we have to deal with no matter what system we're in. Obviously, we would love for all teachers to get a vaccine today, right? There's science and then there's CDC rules and there's all these other things. And there's a lot, to use Dorati's term, a lot of noise around, around this, this subject. But ideally, every teacher would have a vaccine if they wanted one, right? Um, and I, and I, w- I will say that, you know, Matt, you brought up a good point this week. I don't think teachers, when they signed up to be a teacher, realized that they would be making a life or death decision of whether to go to work or not. So, you know, uncharted territory. Nobody thought that we'd be making these decisions, but here we are. One of the critiques of the district is that the planning has not happened either timely enough or in the right direction. So, so there are definitely a few points that were made in today's discussions that, uh, are worth a listen. I don't understand why one of the best school districts uh, in LA, if not the state, is was not immediately prepared to obtain the waiver to open our, our TK through second grade um, while in the purple tier. That was a massive failure. Um, it, it's just that's, I've, I think I've lost faith I've lost a little bit of faith in the the people who are supposed to be advocating for our kids. I don't think anyone, with rare exceptions, is satisfied with distance learning. And by anyone, I mean teachers as well as parents and students. It's a lousy way to learn. There's a tiny proportion of students who, you know, especially in the higher grades, might have anxiety relating to showing up at school in person who may be more comfortable doing it at a distance. But they are a tiny minority. You know, all the evidence shows, evidence from the district, evidence from other studies done around the country, is that, you know, if it's not doing students in academically, and it is in a lot of cases, it's doing them in socio-emotionally, it's doing them in in terms of mental health, you know, they're suffering from all kinds of symptoms, depression, weight gain, feelings of isolation, helplessness, suicidal ideation, you name it, it's happening. Um, and, you know, if you try and get an appointment with a child psychologist in Southern California or a psychiatrist uh, to help with your child, you're going to have a very hard time even getting an appointment, even assuming that you can afford to do such a thing. Uh, there are vast problems of equity, um, which is, you know, it, it's, it's supposed to be hardwired into the system that we want to have equity in our system. And yet the students that are not getting access even to necessarily the right equipment to be able to study calmly online, um, you know, if they if even if they have access, they're not necessarily uh, logging on. If they're logging on, they're not necessarily paying attention. They may be playing games. Supervision by adults or siblings is very spotty. And, you know, I will, you know, talking for myself, I'm a very privileged parent in this district and I'm keenly aware of it. My wife and I are both highly educated 
We don't have any financial problems. We both work from home. We're able to give our son a tremendous amount of support that others are not able to do. And yet it is tremendously difficult for us. Um, and I'm not looking for any pity at all. I think we have it easier than just about anyone. But, you know, in the best of circumstances, and I would point to myself as the best of circumstances, this is a lousy way to go about running an education. If you visited our schools right now, would the classrooms all be ready for in-person teaching? They are not. Are, is it being worked on? It is. But it's not there yet. And teachers need to see those rooms ready. We need to see that um, that we'll be keeping things clean. Clearly, parents are frustrated, and there are a lot of issues that are unintended consequences of of learning from home. Um, we are currently in a model of distance learning plus uh, that was done through a collaborative process led by Superintendent Benderati. So this is his story about how we got there. What we ended up with is this model called distance plus, which is not hybrid learning, right? Because hybrid yeah. learning actually is has a definition and it is a thing in the education code versus what we have. And Yes. So you guys were planning for hybrid, and this is what I think. And so we're starting to get into some of the, the, the reasons for this podcast, which is, right, there's a ton of parent anger out there. And I think this is yeah. starting to scratch the surface of some of it, and some of the anger is rooted in a belief that the school district didn't appropriately plan at any stage, at, at any stage, right? Yeah. There's parents who just believe the school district didn't plan, and there are some who acknowledge that what planning was did occur – was insufficient and then abandoned for what we currently have. And so I think there's a decision point here that, that people want explained, which is if we were planning for hybrid learning, which has A day, B day schedules, and sometimes kids are in class and sometimes they're at home, and great. If that's what we were planning for, why don't we have that? Why do we have distance learning plus, which is not a hybrid model? Let me just be very clear. It was not the planning. If we wanted to do hybrid, we would have done hybrid. This is where the issue comes because there's some nuances about the hybrid that the community has to remember in order to, when you implement a hybrid, some decisions have to be made. For example, I just mentioned the two cohorts of students, the A, B, A group and the B group. You can alternate those in AM, PM, um, or you can alternate those day by day. Uh, one day, one group comes and then the second day, another group comes, or you can, you can decide to say, you're going to, you're going to alternate week by week. There's, uh, the, the point is, uh, half the time, one group is on campus, the other one is not. There is a third group that really caused a lot of consternation, which is a group that was ne never going to come on campus at all. And and we felt, and when we surveyed people, we we calculated about 20 to 30% were not going to come on campus. So what other districts do when they do a hybrid is they create what we call an online academy. An online academy to teach those students that were never going to be on campus. And since you have three groups you have to worry about, group A, group B, and group C, which is the students that were never, were never going to be on campus. That one, that issue became an issue because uh, the, what schools do is they create this academy and they disenroll students from their actual teachers to put into this online academy. Okay. 
that makes sense. So yeah. So so, 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 what, so I guess the question is: so where's the problem? Like I totally understand uh, the system uh, you've uh, outlined. Yeah. Like it totally makes sense, right? A day, yeah. B day kids, C day yeah. kids are the kids whose parents don't want them on campus, and they get a high, they yeah. they get distance learning. Cool. So, Why so is that a problem? Parents, most parents at that time said, "I don't want to lose my teacher." Well, so when you say most parents, so you said twenty to thirty percent of of kids would be the ones who don't come back to campus, right? And so, yes. Yes. and so I, I get that. Like they may say, I don't want to come back to campus, but I also don't want to lose my teacher. Fine. Yeah. But I, so so this is let's say it's thirty percent. That means you've yeah. got seventy percent of parents who are coming back to the hybrid learning model, and yes. the if we didn't move to hybrid learning because we were concerned about disenfranchising 70% of students, it seems to me, based on the survey we did and talking, that, like, that's the tyranny of the minority, right? Like, why didn't we say, okay, I'm sorry, set 30% of kids. I'm sorry you're going to be lose your teacher. We understand that. However, 70% of people want this other model. Therefore, we're going to go with it. And, yeah, you're going to the ones who are going to get the short end of the stick. Like, yeah. what? why yes. did we care more about the disenfranchisement of that 30% who wanted to be distance only rather than the in-person learning quotient for the 70% who would have returned to campus. Yeah. So let me, so let me, I need to finalize that description of the, that uh, in order to answer your question, I need to finalize what I was explaining in okay. terms of, yep. go ahead. Okay. So there's, there's a, we have, we are a K-12 system. There's an elementary version. Uh, there's elementary schools, secondary schools. I felt comfortable in being able to go to my elementary families. I think they would have accepted it and said, and said, um, let me identify teachers in the entire district that I can uh, uh, release from their sites to be to teach this district-wide distance learning program for for elementary. And elementary is interesting because it is, it's a multiple subject credential, so a teacher can teach. Uh, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade with the same credential is not an issue. It's just a matter of just so I can essentially I can pull a teacher from Webster that would or that can teach first grade to all students in the district that are uh, uh, just distance learning, and I can pull another teacher from another school to teach all second grade and so on. The discomfort is, oh, you don't get to be with your school, or you don't get to be with your with your friends, or you don't get to be with your teacher. Okay, that that's a choice we make. Secondary gets more complicated. There is no way to just, if you imagine six periods in different subjects, and let's say 30% of the students on secondary are Samuel High, let's just say Samuel High, are distance learning. What I would have to do, and most schools do, and I propose the idea of creating this academy with programs like Khan Academy, or there's a program called Apex, or it's like an independent studies program where I can assign a teacher that are just make sure kids are on task, but it's not going to be the subject specialist for that for that subject that the kid is taking. So if the student's taking French, the French has to be taught with that computer system uh, for the student. That was a that was a no brainer from from the student population, from the students, from the from the staff, as well as majority of parents I heard, and that took the noise of most of the conflict. Which then pressured me into this. God, how do I? How do we? How do we do this? I wonder if there's a way to address these issues where we still maintain students on the same site, the same teacher, 
and that was the birth of the Distance Plus. So, so explain it, for it, me it, a little so, bit there. The, the, so when you say that was the, the heat, I, I'm still not entirely clear on where the conflict was. Because what you've outlined to me there yeah. is an entirely reasonable system. At uh, yeah. the elementary school level, straight A day, B day, C cohort, distance learning. Yeah. I, and I, I understand the complexity at the secondary level, right? Because like, yeah. I actually went through bits at one point to do, get a, a credential to do journalism, and it's a single subject credential. And, like, I totally actually I get that argument, get where you're coming from yeah. on that. And so your yeah. solution to that problem was partner with a, a a distance learning program that already exists and the students who want that sort of, you know, you, you create the, the Samo High Longboat Academy, right, that's the distance yeah. learning cohort, and that operates under whether it's Khan or something else. Great. So, But I'm still not hearing what the problem with that is. Like, why was that a problem? What, what is the, the, you're, are you saying that the parents of secondary students were – unhappy with the proposal that yes. their distance learning student would be in yeah. a digital academy yeah. instead yeah. of distance learning from their established high school teachers. Yes. So let me, let me, let me just kind of explain, because if you wonder who's, who's making the biggest noise, the biggest noise I got through this whole year isn't from this open up Santa Monica. Now it was from that situation, the, the amount of emails fervor and just stuff going around. It was pretty rough. Another consistent comment that we're getting here at the Santa Monica Daily Press is the question of resource usage. We have large campuses, we have lots of outdoor space, and here's what some parents think about that. What I would also add is that we need to be creative about solutions to this. I mean, the fact that we're not utilizing any outdoor space is crazy to me. There are schools in Colorado that are utilizing outdoor space to get more kids on campus. They say there's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothing. So for us to be here in Santa Monica and, um, you know, I need to buy into the fact that we can't use outdoor space. I'm not, I'm not, I don't buy it. I, I, I view that as laziness. I view that as a refusal to be creative, to find a solution to benefit our children which is, I think, uh, tragic. There are also, I know, problems with individual sites. You know, at Will Rogers, we have a lot of open space. Uh, we have breezeways right outside the classrooms, which provide shade for outdoor seating. You know, we have a lot of inherent advantages, but I know some of the bigger elementary schools like Franklin and Roosevelt don't necessarily share those advantages. Uh, does that mean that they shouldn't be as audacious about reopening as we are? You know, if, if audacious is even the right word when we're only talking about one or two days a week. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know the school sites well enough to answer in detail, but I suspect that in terms of the spirit of the enterprise, it would be good to see some imagination and some, some, you know, some creative thinking around these problems so that they can, in fact, give their students the things that those students need just as bad as the students at my school need. And so we can certainly all relate to uh, the example of Colorado. Um, but here's what Dorati and... Uh, Sarah Braff said about this. You know, one of the big critiques, and we addressed this a little bit, is around um, innovation and facilities. And you mentioned students have to be distanced. There needs to be plans, right? There's concerns about spacing. There's a lot of, there are parents who have levied critiques that say the, the district hasn't thought creatively enough about how to utilize its physical spaces. That whether it's empty, empty classrooms at SAMO, whether it's empty classrooms at Olympic, whether it's field space, whether it's public space adjacent to schools, at the new fields or next to smash, like whatever. 
there's lots of ideas about physical space. And I know we're real short on time, so you got to, you know, talk fast and give us a brief answer. But what is the district doing to innovate around the idea of its facilities so, and finding enough space to put all the students back in classrooms? So, so if I was to say, I got 30 kids in a class, uh, we're going to sprawl you out on the football field of Sam High for a classroom, for example. And that teacher is sitting there by, by him or herself. How does he communicate with everyone at the same time? It's still going to come to a heat. Okay, half of, your, half of your students are assigned, half or across the street at some facility. Who's over there with those students? Sorry, uh, sorry. What I'm saying is, all of this has to be. I can't just leave students by themselves uh, um, in a classroom without a teacher, right? So if a, so if a. If a school, if a if a teacher, if we're using say a huge library or something, and 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 uh, for a classroom to put it put kids in, yeah, that's one way you do it. But how many of those classrooms exist for uh, everybody uh, everybody on campus to uh, 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 to be able to utilize? If Franklin, there isn't that kind of a space. I think Rogers Rogers has the biggest space. They're using some of it. But it, all of it is still going to be limited by the staffing that you have. Okay, so if you can say, well, bring all students on campus and and uh, and have the students in one location versus another, well, I, I can't split the half staff in half. I got a, a a person in half. That person has to be with the with the students. So, so there's some logistical things with that. So that's why majority of schools aren't doing that. You're not going to find a school just saying. Let's find empty spaces somewhere and do that because what will happen with the staffing uh, staffing uh, staffing situation? The teacher may want to give some input as to how that room should be set up, but we have to do it with the uh, maintenance and operations people or whoever is doing it with the district because we don't we have first of all a lot of the schools are getting new furniture. Don't ask in the middle of everything. So that's added a complication because um, all the new furniture was for kids to be able to work in groups and small groups. And so we're trying to figure out how best to, to deal with the practicality of that. Uh, in some classrooms, some furniture may have to be removed in order to have the six foot distancing. And that has to be done. But as far as I know, I don't know of, except for the classrooms that are already open, I don't know of any meetings that have taken place thus far. Have, have teachers been consulted in uh, ideas and sort of thinking outside of the box solutions to account for the extra space that we're going to need, right? So that one parent, some parents have been very vocal about, you know, why haven't there been discussions about teaching outside or utilizing field space or oh, moving teachers kids. have had it. We want to teach outside. We definitely want to teach outside. We keep being told that we're not able to because of X, Y, and Z, or we're only able to in these places, but not these places. And, and so the, the district is telling and so you that. that hasn't been made clear to us and, as and, to why. I mean, sometimes it's because there's no shade. Um, and, it, you know, it could be pretty hot when you're out there. I don't know that that's the end all and be all. Uh, some places, our schools are so different each site. I don't know if you've toured, but um, there's no two schools the same. 
So the size of the rooms are different. Uh, the hallways, are they covered? Are they uncovered? If you have a covered hallway, you can do outside work and be still uh, sheltered from the rain if we ever get any. So um, there, there are those kind of things and also how close you can be. I haven't been told or been part of that discussion. So I can't really answer the specifics about it. But it sounds like teachers want are, and are willing, not just willing, they actively want some creative solutions, right? It, it doesn't sound... Absolutely. And Absolutely. So, and so when you say that there's different reasons why that have been given, I mean, this is, again, a big part of the parent concern. And, like, you know, parents have been told you can't have portable shade structures because, you know, they might blow away. Or they've been told you can't... Right. Well, that's, but, that's law. I mean, those are laws that we don't have control over. I have to give them that. Uh, it's not that they haven't looked into it. It's that you can't physically do it unless you make permanent structures. So, so there's think- so that's on the shade structure. But some so like when you say permanent structures, I mean, I look at for instance Olympic High School, right, which is in my opinion vastly underutilized anyway. Right now, it doesn't. You you could put some kids in those classrooms that you would have had at other school sites, right? There's there's places where the district seems yes, like it could be creative and it's absolutely. not. Absolutely, absolutely, that's possible. And that so and so just to make clear, when people are frustrated about this, the teachers are absolutely on board with looking for those creative solutions. Absolutely. And so, one hundred percent, they are. And so they are. Also, we're also looking for compliance monitoring. uh, Like like safety monitoring. Yeah, like who's because in all all the reports, it's if you follow the health guidelines, right, and the safety procedures. But if there's nobody to do the compliance monitoring, what are the systems to to ensure that the protocols are being followed? And how do you report problems? And who's responsible for getting back to you and fixing that problem, if there is one? That's one of the reasons we didn't want to start too many days a week, because we want to see if we can work out all the kinks and wherever there are issues, how to solve those problems to get that running well so that we can um, move up and have kids come uh, more often. And finally, we don't want to just leave everybody with lots of uh, opinions here. Uh, this is what everybody thinks you can do moving forward and how you can make a difference. Obviously, this is a big topic and people are, the people's interest in it is going to remain high. Like what, what can they do to stay informed and stay engaged? Uh, really stay in touch with the principal meetings that they're having on site. There's all kinds of meetings they're they're engaged in uh, with parent groups, with with staff. So when there's opportunities to meet with the parents, all they got to do is just, uh, uh, check in with the principal. And then they'll give you an opportunity to come hear the details. Okay, that's the best thing, so they can hear the details. So contact the principal uh, under, uh, so they can explain to you when they're having these conversations. And uh, and they'll be able to answer some details that uh, that, that's, uh, that that they may not know. So because there's a lot of assumptions of uh, people are making about things without fact. And uh, and I can certainly try to explain it from a district office, but these intricate details are are, are specific to schools. And and uh, so the best way to do that is really stay engaged with the principal meetings that are occurring at the site. If in an ideal world, I don't think it will practically happen, but in an ideal world, they need to ditch the idea of distance learning plus because it's not a it's not a real thing. Um, they need to do some sort of a hybrid model. Um, I think everyone needs to, you know, make it very clear that they need to start planning now 
now they need to start planning for next year because if they don't get their act together now, we are going to be in a not. I mean, it seems like they're basically just relying on COVID going away, which, you know, it's getting better. Is it going to stay better? I don't know. Um, but if it doesn't get better and we're not prepared, we're going to be in the exact same place next year. And that's going to be tragic. It's going to be absolutely tragic. So I would say one of the things that people should be doing is they should be pushing the board members, um, showing up at board meetings and making it clear that they're not happy. Um, and, you know, making it clear that we expect that we will be open to the maximum extent possible in the fall. And that doesn't mean what, mis- what, what, what I'm saying by that is Dr. Drotty has said that that means that it's only 50% and we're going to be in some sort of hybrid in the fall. That's not what that means. That means that they need to get creative about thinking of about using outdoor space and other uh, creative solutions to make sure that we can get the most kids back on campus as possible. I think a lot of the anger and concern in the district on all sides stems from mistrust. And the mistrust has grown because the leaders have not led with knowledge and expertise. They've led with how do you feel over here and how do you feel over here? So the parents who like me, you know, are really anxious to get students back in the classroom, believe it's time, think there's no obstacle that should stand in our way to do it right now. Um, You know, a lot of them have come to mistrust uh, the whole process by which the school board voted for for Distance Learning Plus, the whole process by which uh, the superintendent, Dr. Drati, proposed that instead of a hybrid model of some kind or another. Um, And they have come to believe that what they're told is not to be believed. Um, And I think the same is true of parents who are very hesitant to go back to school, who are worried that parents like us are irresponsible and reckless and are going to endanger everybody. Uh, They also don't believe what they're told by us, by what what the newspapers report as to the latest state of the science, you know, and so on and so forth. They want to find reasons why in the small print of the CDC recommendations, there's this, that and the other that shows why we should actually be much more cautious and not less cautious. Ditto with teachers. You know, uh, I mentioned earlier that they, they, they don't necessarily trust that all the health and safety protocols will be in place. Um, but, you know, at this point, I don't think they entirely trust the way the conversation's going, what it means. And when a parent like me pushes for my position, even if I'm not saying it, they can hear contempt for their position or contempt for their professionalism or contempt for the positions that they've chosen to take, um, which I don't feel at all, as I've explained, you know, as clearly as I know how. Uh, but I think the whole atmosphere has been poisoned, and that's made it very difficult to have productive conversations, not only across the lines of different points of view, but even within the boundaries of groups of people in this district who feel similarly. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying I'm right. Uh, I happen to be cautiously optimistic about the way things are going. I have a certain amount of faith in the leaders that I have been talking to where they are now. Um, but I totally understand why other people feel mistrustful, uh, worry that what they're told is not actually real, but it's just an excuse to keep prevaricating and kick the ball down the road. I understand that completely. I also think it's entirely appropriate for activists to push to make sure that things go faster, not slower. Um, so, you know, that's, I think, where we are. It's not that people aren't smart. People in this district are plenty smart. Um, I think it's that they've been told a bunch of things over a sustained period of time and it's poisoned the atmosphere to the point where they don't trust anything. And that's a great shame. We need to get past that as fast as we can.
So, so you know, we this this conversation hasn't just emerged, right? It's been actually going on for a little bit of time now. And one of the things that we've noticed here in the office is that there has actually been an evolution in some of the parent thoughts and critiques. And initially, people seemed very more very much focused on the superintendent and the district. But recently, we've seen a huge shift with folks really looking at and critiquing the union for its positions on the reopening issue. And we, we you know we did a survey, and definitely that would seem to be. The, the, I know the, it's, the, it's the very focus. disappointing so, so, because we've always been on the same team. So, where do you think that's come from? Like, why do you why do you think that's happened? And, and you know what what should what do you what is the union going to do about it? What how are you going to interact with parents on this issue? Well, I, we're going to do a lot more of. Uh, I think we need to have more informational sessions, both for teachers and for parents. But we often don't have control of those. Those are usually district affairs. And so I don't know exactly how we get over that bridge, but I'd like to see us do it. I don't think negotiations is the right place for it, but I do think there are other right places for it. Where, But my main thing is that this these groups tend to be very insular. And they they're not representative of the whole school district. They're just the loudest representatives in the whole school district. And so I talk to many parents who feel very differently, but aren't going to come out and say it. And some of them are very intimidated by this group and feel very bullied by this group. Because not all of the approaches have been professional. Gotcha. And so, so you're summarizing that your hope is for more communication, right? More opportunities for the teachers. More opportunities for creative thought. Okay, so that was a uh, that's a long one, folks. Um, thanks for sticking it out today. Um, again, we will be publishing all these conversations uh, up on the podcast in the next few days, so you can listen to them in their entirety. There's a lot in here that we didn't. Uh, get into this particular podcast, but um, by all means, uh, give them a listen and uh, thanks for being here today. Thanks for joining us today on Inside the Daily Press. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. Music for the Inside the Daily Press podcast is brought to you by The Brig Band. The Brig Band, is an LA jam band that has been playing live since 2002. Regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder, to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. To find out where and when you can hear them live, head to thebrigband.com.